0: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and prefund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash freelancershow. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 226 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about podcasting for freelancers. Now, I think everybody on this call has and produces a podcast. At least
1: one. At least one, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes. Does anyone on here have more than one? I
1: had two until Monday, and now I have three, so... Yeah,
0: they're multiplying.
1: Yes, they're like tribbles. <laughs>
0: yeah, I have five. So, yeah,
2: I have one that's in hiatus and am working on developing a second one with a with a co-host. Oh, nice. Yeah,
0: yeah, I have a few that I've been looking at starting. It's primarily because yes, these shows. Of course, I I had the audiences, and now I'm building the products, which is kind of backward. Mm. But I'm thinking that I want to specialize a little bit toward the audiences that specifically need the products that I'm building for the rest of my audiences.
2: Makes sense. Yeah, that's something we should discuss. Uh, yeah. Which comes first, the audience or the, or the monetization?
0: Yes.
1: Kind of. Yeah. The audience, right. The, the monetization approach or the product.
0: Yep. Well, let's start out with just, I think a lot of people get to the point where they're just saying, look, should I start a podcast? You know, what are the benefits? Why, why would you want to start a podcast?
2: Yes, next question. (laughs) Well, I'll dive in here. As folks may know, I'm I'm a big fan of evaluating how a lead generation technique does in terms of building trust. Because for freelancers, for consultants, for people in the world of professional services, trust is really that critical factor in making a sale or moving somebody along from prospect to customer. So I think at least one reason podcasting can can perform really really well in that in that area, I suppose unless you're inherently untrustworthy, <laughs> or uh, shifty is the word I think would have been used when I was growing up in the South. Unless there's just something wrong with you and you're and you're really not trustworthy, podcasting can really it's a channel that performs particularly well, and I think it's because. You can just tell so much from somebody's voice. You can tell whether they're thoughtful, whether they're manipulative, whether they're, I mean, maybe you're wrong in how you read somebody based on your voice, but you can kind of read people based on their voice alone. And I I think that makes podcasting super effective at building trust. So that's something to think about. It's, I mean, it's not an automatic, yes, you should definitely be doing a podcast, but it's, I think it's something that really is in the favor of podcasting. Uh, There's other benefits as well as I'm sure we'll get to as we talk through this.
1: I've got a minor nuance to what you just said, which is it's, I don't think it's binary like shifty or not shifty. It's this person is a good fit for me. So I've had plenty of people tell me that they've heard me either on this show or on others that, you know, they've heard the same sort of things from everybody from i don't know alan weiss to blair ends to brennan dunn but my particular deliver like my take on it just sort of this usually gets described as pragmatic no nonsense kind of descriptive here's what you do kind of thing has been the differentiator in many cases why someone would go with me and you know for something like coaching instead of Brennan who offers the same thing and Blair who offers the same thing and Alan Weiss who offers a similar thing. I think it's, it's as much about finding a relationship match. Like I, you know, I don't think I'm a good coach for everyone. And I think people, when they hear your voice, they can tell if you're going to click.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. It's, they hear how you put words together and, and how they sort of there's this kind of meta sense that you get if you listen to somebody for long enough. You're like, you can kind of, kind of imagine how they see the world, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah I, I agree completely. There's, there's this like, it, it's weird because it's asymmetric. Mm-hmm. Because there are people out there who feel like they know me or know you or in, anybody on this show. And to me, I don't know them. I've never met them. And I, I don't know them as well as they feel like they know me and probably do know me better than I know them. So it's, that's the weird part about it. Maybe we should talk about that in a minute, too. Mm. is this kind of asymmetric vulnerability that you have, but you're right. Yeah. It, it's, a, people get to know you in a way that's, I think quite different than the written word. Yes.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's, it's interesting because I've had people that have come up to me and actually said that, right. I feel like I know you. And it, the The other thing that I do is I compare it a little bit to like blogging or video And I think video is the highest bandwidth and sort of the highest connection value, but it's also a lot more of a commitment. You can listen to podcasts in the car if it's audio or audio only. And at the same time, people just don't get that nuance that they get when you speak, when they're reading what you wrote. And so it really is kind of, in my opinion, the best of all worlds where you get the high engagement, high throughput value And people take you with them in the car when they go somewhere and they hear your voice and they feel like they really do get that connection with you. And that's a value that you really can't get any other way, emailing them or writing blog posts or anything like that. It just, it doesn't put you in that same place as them feeling like they're getting part of a conversation with you.
2: You know, I'm glad you mentioned video because I agree. Video, I mean, there's more information technically in video. I mean, not just size on on storage, but also there's visual information in addition to auditory information. And that cuts both ways. For some people who know how to use that, it makes it just dramatically more effective. But for other people, like little things like you're not making eye contact quite right with the video camera or you're fidgeting on audio, that stuff that extra information doesn't get in the way of your message and the, and the potential connection with the listener. Whereas with video, it can, it can ruin it. Even if, you know, the audio channel is great. Even if what you're saying is compelling, it can just ruin it for people. If you, you know, if you just look nervous on camera or whatever, That's true. I think that's worth it's worth, that's worth taking into account when you're thinking about like all the marketing channels that are available to you. That, that's one reason why video may not, even though it has, it's sort of a it's more full spectrum experience it's uh may not be the the right channel to use for certain people
1: yeah i've i've kind of ruled out video for a combination of reasons video you know vlogging or video podcasting because it's just for kind of what chuck said where it limits the number of ways that people can listen to it or watch it you kind of have to be in a specific eyes free mode that I think is relatively rare compared to, you know, you know, going on a bike ride or in the car or on the Stairmaster or something. It just feels a lot more accessible to have an audio, at least have an audio version if you're going to do a video podcast. The other thing for me was like, I mean, I feel like I could do it. I do webcasts, you know, every month or two. And, you know, I feel like they're well received and they're definitely powerful, but it's just, the bang for the buck just isn't there. It's once you have podcasting down, you can bang out an episode in a half an hour and, and very little, you know, like like soup to nuts. And video for me, I just I see these people who just like throw their their laptop on top of anything and they'll just talk into the into the camera with like terrible lighting and the background's disgusting and you know and they seem to not care and and maybe it works for whatever their goals are but I. I would be a little bit more fastidious about it, which causes like, you know, oh, just a range of complications. Like I have to put pants on, I have to comb my hair, I have to do, like it puts all this friction in front of my content creation that I don't necessarily feel is then rewarded with, you know, a commensurate benefit for the listener or benefit for me if I'm looking to promote something.
0: Yeah. The one thing that I will say for video is that, so I, uh, one of my friends, John Sanmez, he puts a whole bunch of videos up on YouTube. And I think he just takes the audio off and uses that for his podcast. But his YouTube channel has generated quite a bit of traffic to his website. And so if you're using that as sort of another way to engage, in other words, you know, you have your podcast for the people who want to put you in your, in their pocket and listen to you on their headphones, and then you've got your videos on YouTube to bring people in who are going to sit and watch a bunch of YouTube videos. And then you, you know, you do the blogging for the people who are searching for the, how do I do this kind of thing? And you, you can put all those together to build a content strategy. But yeah, as far as if you're going to pick one, I definitely agree with you, Jonathan, on your take on which one should I do? It's probably the podcast.
1: Yeah. So I mean, my wife watches a just oodles of knitting videos, like Nidio Nidios. Uh,
0: you should totally call them that.
1: Nidios. Uh, I don't think that's. They have a term for everything, but I don't think that one's coined <laughs> yet. But, <laughs> that's but she watches these knitting videos, and they're they're totally podcasts. They come out weekly. It's usually a lady or two ladies, occasionally a guy and a gal, just like sitting in front of a computer in dim light, talking about. Some of them are better than others, of course, but most of them are really amateur. But the personality coming off of these people is just unbelievable, you know, and you get you see the inside of their house. They And it's I guess it's knitting. So it's kind of you can't really an audio podcast for knitting would be really hard because they show tons of things. They're always holding up stuff to the camera and showing you like how they did this brioche pattern or whatever. And, you know, so I. I I think it's probably good for everybody, but if we're looking to looking for bang for the buck for freelancers who do the kind of things freelancers usually do, uh, I vote for audio definitely.
2: Yeah, that sort of brings up a tangential issue, which I hope I think we'll get to later. Is what's the what's the purpose of this? Is it educational or is it something else? Because I do think when it's certain types of education, you you do need that video component. I'm really just echoing what Jonathan said, and I can see that applying. In the world of, of freelancing, but uh, audios for sure is just a more universal format with a wider reach. Anyway, moving right along.
0: No, I, I think it's a valid question. I mean, what is the strategy, right? Because if you can focus on that outcome, if you know what you want people to do after listening to or during listening to your podcast, that changes the conversation a bit because then it's because I get people asking, like, what should I talk about? And, you know, who should I target and how, you know a lot of the questions are technical. I don't know if we really want to dig into the technical issues, you know, because you can find that online. I don't know that a lot of people are really talking about how do I get people from podcast listener to uh, hiring me as a service provider. And you know, how do you make that leap? How do you get them from, you know, headphones in their ears on the road to on my website, clicking the buy button?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are, that's the, the tough part with podcasting is that the conversion is brutal. Yes, uh, the, the tracking is really pretty bad too. So analytics are low uh, in terms of, you know, the, the sense of accuracy and granularity in the analytics is really bad in the conversion. You know, there's nothing to click and they're probably driving. So putting a call to action in the audio itself is probably not that effective. Like, oh, you know, like in, in YouTube, everybody's like, you know, click subscribe down below, rate and review, you know, and it, all that stuff. It's really kind of a waste of time, I think, to put that into the audio itself mm-hmm. because they're not in a position to do it and they're not going to remember. I, I mean, I've done hundreds of podcast episodes that, that I've personally published, never mind ones that I've been on, and it just doesn't work. You know, it, it doesn't it hasn't worked for me. Yeah. So I think I think the better approach is to do something like ask for questions at the end of an episode. You know, if you have any questions about this, and then have some some memorable something that they can do when they get back to their desk or something they could maybe do quickly on their phone, but probably not at some point they need to have some channel whether it's a twitter account or a facebook page or a mailing list or just an email address where they will eventually someone will eventually raise their hand and ask you a question or or just say wow that was a great episode and then that's where you can put in a clickable call to action like oh wow thanks for the compliment you know would you mind rating it in itunes it'd be a huge help or if somebody has a question that they want to put on the show you know and they email you about it that's the time to You know, reply and say, "Oh, you know, if you want to ask questions like this all the time, you should jump on my mailing list. Here's a link." And once the audience starts to engage with you in in that, when they're at the desk, more or less, or at least when they're they're not, you know, in their running shorts, then then that's the place to give them some way to give back. But putting it into the actual audience really, it's pretty rough.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, the way that I tend to do this is that we give them something to come back to the website for. And so that's why we do picks uh, on the episodes. Uh, initially we did picks cause that I liked them, but that is by far something that is very popular for people to come back to the website for so They're looking for those links to picks. And so then when they come back to the website, then they get prompted to join the mailing list. And then I can actually reach them when they're sitting at their desk And honestly, I think the mailing list is the critical piece, at least for me, in getting people from listening to the shows to actually in a position where I can tell them about something that they can then go purchase. The other thing I'll put out there is that if you are going to put some kind of offer out there like, hey, I've got this free thing that I know you're really going to want, and you know that they're listening while they're mowing their lawn or driving down the road and they really can't check that out, repetition at that point is key. And then the last thing I'll put in there, because there are really three things to this, and the first two are those two. The last one is if you can set up some kind of trigger for them. So it's, hey, next time you sit at your desk and you're thinking about what do I do next, then go to devchat.tv and sign up for the webinar. Or the next time you're sifting through email and you realize that, oh, I'm so overwhelmed with all the email I get, then go pick up the product or the freebie that I'm giving away about how to manage your inbox. And those are the kinds of things that are going to then get people, if they hear it four or five times, go get my email management thing, go get my email management thing. Next time you're sitting down, you know, go get my email management thing. They'll sit down, they'll open Gmail, they'll take a look, they'll see they have a hundred messages. Ugh, I got a million things in my, oh, wait a minute, there was that thing from Chuck. And then they go to the website to go find it.
2: Nice. Never thought of that. Yeah, that's great. You know, uh, waxing academic here for a moment. Part of the problem with podcasting is that freelancers really, I think, gravitate towards and benefit from using marketing that follows the direct response model. Mm -hmm. So in direct response, there's an action that the recipient of of that marketing can take that's a next step or demonstrates interest or... Mm -hmm it moves them closer to becoming a customer and and that action is embedded in the advertising somehow so there's a button you can click there's a number you can call there's you know some specific action you can take and podcasting limits your ability to have that kind of direct response embedded in the the marketing itself if you're thinking of podcasting as marketing if you're not just doing it like as a public service to somebody on the other hand You know, there's this other whole category of marketing, display advertising, you know, just kind of quote unquote branding advertising, where they're not even asking for a response. And you see that more like in the world of uh, big companies, fashion advertising tends to follow this model there's just, you look at the ad and they're not asking for any kind of response and you cannot measure the success of that type of advertising. And it's frustrating to people on a limited budget like all of us are. (laughs) You know, all of us in the freelance world are on a relatively limited budget compared to big Fortune 500 brands. They can, you know, drop millions of dollars on an ad campaign with no measurable effect and it doesn't seem to bother them that there's no way to measure it. So that's part of the problem is that Podcasting kind of spans both of those worlds of unmeasurable response. That's what Jonathan was talking about. And and that brings up this question of, is it good for freelancers? Chuck, some of your ideas about dealing with that are the first time I've heard of them, and I think they're great. They're fantastic. I, I talked to, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the guy's name. It's one of the guys behind Podcast Motor, a uh, very... Great. Very fine. Yeah, Craig. Very fine uh, podcast editing service, uh, friend of the show, I suppose.
0: Uh, And uh, show as a matter of fact, (laughs)
2: okay, there you go. Hi, Craig. My question to Craig was, what are people using as a call to action on podcasts these days that seems to be particularly effective? And he said, it's less and less of a specific pitch for something, which is again, that specific pitch is more the direct response model that we in the freelancing world tend to favor. And are frustrated that we can't use successfully with podcasting. And it's more of an invitation to join an ongoing conversation, which is kind of what Jonathan was hinting at and sort of what you were hinting at, Chuck. So things like joining a Facebook group or joining some community or asking a question, those are the types of call to action that seem to be more effective these days. So in in that sense, podcasting is kind of, it has to have a context in a larger system of moving somebody from anonymous person to client or customer it, or, or is said another way podcasting can't do the whole thing for you i right. mean maybe it can in some cases but it's it's not maybe not smart to rely on it to do all the heavy lifting of moving somebody from never heard of this guy to gonna hire this guy to do thousands of dollars of work for us
0: yeah i mean that being said i have run across in fact a couple of my first clients when i first went freelance i mean they listened to my show about rails And then they watched a video series that I did about Rails. And then they came to me and they said, we want to hire you to do Rails and spent thousands of dollars paying me to write Rails code. But I'll tell you, that was relatively rare. I think I got two jobs that way. And the rest of them were, you know, somebody would listen to the podcast and they'd listen for a long time and then they'd hear me ask, you know, for do you need help? And then they'd come hire me or they would talk to somebody and somebody would say, well, I listened to this podcast from a guy that does freelancing and things like that. And so it definitely pays to let people know what you're capable of doing. But yeah, it's typically the other things, you know, they've been on my mailing list for a while and they've heard from me and they've done all these other things that kind of get them to the place where it's where I finally give them the pitch. Do you have this problem? Why? Yes, I do. Well, I have the solution. Well, great. I think I'll hire you.
2: Right, which is kind of no different. Than, I mean, in, in that sense, a podcast is acting like a referral yes. for you. It's, it's, it sort of has the same dynamics as business owner A says, oh, I need a Rails developer and asks their friend, business owner B, do you know of a Rails developer? And they get a, re- a referral to you. The podcast is kind of acting that same mm-hmm. way.
0: Yeah, I'll also point out, though, and this is a mistake that I see a lot of people make, because it's a mistake that I made, and that is that I was podcasting to my peers, not my customers, by podcasting to programmers. And so when I was out there trying to find freelance gigs off of that, it had to be a referral, because, um, you know, and sometimes the referral was, oh, I'll talk to my boss and see if you can join our team and augment our team. But that was the closest I got to actually directly addressing anybody who was going to hire me.
1: There's another aspect in addition to the, the marketing that's sort of like referral, is that once someone is talking to you, if they listen to the podcast, you are dramatically differentiated from anybody you're going to be competing with. That if, is so true. Yeah, even if you are competing with anyone, it's it's like a super warm lead, if not hot lead. Uh, if somebody contacts you for work because, or you know, if they're a fan of the show and they need what you have, you're probably the only person on their list. Mm-hmm. And it's really just a question of can they afford you and are you available? That's been my experience. I mean, the people who have, well, actually, I can, I can flip it around the other way and say it's been that way for podcasts I've listened to. So the very first podcast that I got completely addicted to was Boag World by uh, Paul Boag and Marcus Lillington. And Those guys are the, hilarious. Yeah, they're a riot. And they were like rock stars to me. Mm-hmm. You know? And eventually, I can't know what it was for. I think I needed some sort of a website teardown or something. And I paid for a Skype call with Paul. And I was like borderline starstruck. You know? There was no I wasn't shopping around for other people. Like, oh okay, let me get the price from Paul and like see who, see what the other prices are around the internet. I was like, He gave me the price. I was like, I can afford that. Done. Mm -hmm. I think it dramatically decreases the shopping around factor.
0: On a similar vein, um, I'll also point out that there were people who I either approached or they approached me because they got my name from somewhere. And we start talking and I'd mention that I was the host of Ruby Rogues or that I had been doing the Teach Me to Code screencasts. And so then they would go and check that out and they'd come back and go, like, all of a sudden, everybody else was off the table because mm-hmm. they went and they saw this body of work that I had and realized, I'm not just talking to somebody who can solve my problem. I'm talking to somebody who teaches the people that would solve my problem how to solve my problem.
2: Yep. And I think that's an argument for doing a podcast to your peers rather than to your clients. I'm not saying you should mm-hmm. in every case you should do one or the other. I think there's evidence on both sides. I guess this is the time for me to trot out my new favorite recent meta statistic, which is, comes from not the most scientific of sources, Reader's Digest. It's a, it's a poll of the 100 most trusted people in America, and, and I'll just summarize this so I won't go through the whole thing, but seven of the top 10 most trusted people in America are entertainers, like actors, actresses, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the most trusted politician is Jimmy Carter at number 24, The most trusted uh, religious personality is Billy Graham at number 67. And people who are in the world of entertainment, storytelling, and pop culture are highly overrepresented on this list compared to more quote-unquote authoritative personalities. So to me, the lesson is if they're a fan of your show, you're probably the only choice in their mind. And there's something about that repeated exposure that someone's there consistently every week in your ear holes. (laughs) Um, You know, there's just something about that that really does build up trust. Even if you're not just listing out facts or doing groundbreaking research, even if you're not, you know, the most authoritative authority in your field, you can still become the most trusted person for a particular listener of your show.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think that's very powerful.
0: Yep. So uh, I kind of want to, change tactics a little bit because, well, it's, it's along these same veins, right? I mean, you're telling the story, you're uh, framing the narrative and you're, I don't talk about people's ear holes in public. Um, but you know, they're (laughs) listening to you and yeah. So then the question becomes, well, then what do I talk about? And Oh, good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, And I mean, that's probably besides the okay, what do I need to start a podcast? You know, and it's like a microphone and a website. In a nutshell, that's all you need. It's, okay, well, what do I talk about? Like, I don't even know what to talk about. I know what not to talk about. Well,
2: I think Everything. the first question, <laughs> yeah, right. The first question is, who, who are you talking to? Are you talking to your clients or your, your peers? I guess we've kind of already discussed that, but that, that the first level of narrowing down, right?
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: And Jonathan and I are both, uh, I think, raving fans of having a strong somewhat polarizing contrarian point of view what would you say would you agree with that Jonathan? 100 yep yeah so i have been talking to a number of people about this lately they've been saying how do i develop that because um i remember being in this place when i started out freelancing it's you, you sort of lack the confidence to get up to stick your head above the crowd and say you're wrong <laughs> and here's why you're wrong and not that you would come across that way, but there's a sort of feeling that you're doing that when you when you are like calling out bad practices in the industry or saying this is a bad idea, you should do this instead. You really feel like you're you're setting yourself up as some kind of uh, false prophet at first, and then you get more comfortable with it um, or a pariah I mean, right
1: right. So it's like, yeah. Uh, that's a th- where does a contrarian view come from? That's an interesting question.
2: I, I mean, I have some specific questions people can ask themselves to generate specific topics. Oh, like there's always some kind of hype train going on in any industry, right? There's always something that's like of the moment that people are excited about, and that's a way you can start to focus your thinking on sort of contrarian ideas. Like, is is there something that's fundamentally flawed about the hype train and where it's headed? Is there something that it's leaving out that's important? Is there some risk to it that people are not aware of? These may not be like become your big mission in your business, but they can certainly be topics that are somewhat contrarian uh, that you can start to incorporate into something like a podcast or even email marketing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, looking at the hype train, looking at the common mistakes people make, looking at the sort of uh, forgotten fundamentals of success that people are ignoring. When I say success, I don't mean success in life, but, you know, success in programming or, you know, success in whatever your discipline is, right? Those, those are some ways that I've been suggesting people think about generating contents that are somewhat controversial or at least have a specific point of view.
1: That is good advice. I, I would throw in a word of caution, though, because you don't want to just use that as a tactic. Without any real underlying passion or mission or something like, you need to believe the thing that you're questioning. I think, or it, or you're in for a very short ride. You know, you you just be that gadfly that's always just saying everything stinks, and everybody's always wrong, and you know, because the hype train isn't isn't gonna last forever on like you know whatever the flavor of the day JavaScript framework is or whatever. So, I mean, I guess it's a strategic decision about how evergreen you want your content to be, which I guess is what I'm talking about here. So, if you're not careful with that and you just look around and you're like, um, I'm just going to say mobile's not important, you know, for your business. Like you don't need to worry about mobile. That's there's my contrarian position. You know, I don't know how long that would last. Or React is a horrible choice or Angular is terrible. You know, like it's hard to um, yeah, but oh, that's that's not addressing
0: an issue in the in your area of expertise, right? You're just taking a position against a technology or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to like warn people not to do. Like, I wouldn't just randomly pick one. I like Phillips. Phillip's advice is good, but I'm just mm-hmm. adding that you want it to be something you genuinely believe and care about. Not not like oh, here's a hype train. I think it needs to be genuine. You know, yeah. like my obviously mine is hourly billing is nuts. I, I genuinely believe that. I believe it for over a decade. I can point to hundreds of examples of why it's true. I didn't just make it up, you know.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I, the the thing is though, is that you're not just talking about well quit hourly billing, but you're talking specifically about a solution too. And so your your conversation isn't so much about hourly billing is nuts you kind of make your case and then the rest of your conversation is here's what to do so that you don't have the pain that comes with the hourly billing. And Mm -hmm. if you can make a message like that, where, Hey, look, you know, this is a problem you probably didn't even think you had. And now that you recognize that really is painful, you know, here's, here's a way around it.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I agree, Jonathan. I find myself getting these questions From people, and I see this in my own experience, there's this like stage in your, uh, you know, marketing maturity, I guess, where you can see the benefit of having that strong point of view, or you see the benefit of whatever, right? But you're not, like, you're. it's like that awkward adolescent stage, right? You know (laughs) what it is to be a cool, you know, guy who gets all the chicks or whatever, but you just can't (laughs) quite pull it off. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just have to kind of fail your way forward, I think. So I just want to add that context. Like that's where where I'm coming from when I uh, when I tell people to do this. I, I am definitely saying to experiment, mm-hmm. and some stuff's going to stick and some's not. It, it's better if obviously if you know and what your mission is. And and I will point out for the benefit of listeners that I've never met anybody who's quite as gifted as Jonathan as at like knowing what's important to him almost immediately as soon as you see it, right? You should tell the, yeah. the Apple announcement story about the iPhone if, if you want. Um, yeah, it's like my superpower.
1: It's the main thing. Somebody asked me recently, you know, secret of success type question. It's like that I, I get obsessed with things and I immediately know that that's all I want to do for the next like decade, which I know from talking to hundreds of people is extremely rare. And yeah, like I was a, I was a, sort of general purpose web developer in 2007 and Steve Jobs came on stage in January, 2007. And he held up that iPhone. I was like, that's what I'm doing from now on. It was just so obvious to me. And Chuck said a similar experience to Apple TV. he's was like immediately was like, Oh, that's so cool. Like you just, and for whatever reason I was close enough, you know, I was a web developer. So I was like, okay, okay. I, I don't want to become I didn't want to go straight to like just chuck everything and become a, an iOS developer. You know, I still loved being a web developer, but I just wanted to focus down onto just things that really mattered, the things that were very, very specific to the iPhone because it was really the only modern smartphone at the time. You know, so I made iPhone websites for you know at least a year or two years, and then other phones started coming out, and I was like, geez. I wrote a book called Building iPhone, <laughs> you know, apps with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Or it could have just as easily been titled mobile apps, but you know we put iPhone in the title because it was the only one
2: mm-hmm.
1: that anybody cared about. But yeah, but I, I consider myself very fortunate to have I don't know that like a quick obsession gene, uh, where I can I can obsess over something very quickly to the exclusion of all other things, and eventually I'll get to a point where you know like that mobile thing for me has really not only do I think the industry's plateaued and gotten very just gigantic you know it's just the hugest it's basically the center of computing now
0: in a lot of ways it is
1: yeah so you know and it's kind of the allure is kind of gone for me now because it's you know it was this pond and now it's the air it's like the water everywhere you look you know and it, it somehow has lost some of the appeal it's almost like that that band that you loved because you were the first one that discovered them and then now they're famous and they're just not as cool anymore or something i don't know it's like Now that it's so prevalent, it's less interesting to me. And I find myself more interested with things that are maybe it's more cutting edge. I don't know. And certainly lately it's been business topics for people who care about technology. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. It's, if you don't automatically have that, it's really hard. So I think the best thing to do to help you find that is to, you know, look back at your passions. Like if you, if you found yourself with a Saturday to yourself, what would you do? you know, knitting, playing guitar, cycling, rock climbing, you know, find a way to apply your existing skill set to perhaps to a vertical that uh, involves your passion. You know, at at least you'll be hanging out with people that you totally dig, you know, and if you do have to fly to a client site, at least it'll be someplace cool that you want to spend an extra couple of days. But it is hard to counsel people about how to figure that out. If it doesn't come naturally, I haven't found a great way to do it.
0: I will chime in here, though, because, you know, you're talking about, again, an area of technology. But, I mean, if you're, I mean, one of my other passions besides uh, technology podcasting is Boy Scouts. And I I really am about Boy Scouts. And I've actually been working on some um, iOS and and, uh, tvOS apps for scouting. And, you know, sometimes the technology just really doesn't grip me. It's like, okay, I have to make another layout for this app. But, I mean, if that's, if that's where you get fired up, then be there. If it is mobile apps, then be there. If it's something else, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be some area of technology. It can be some other area of society where you feel like you can make a difference by bringing web technology or mobile technology to bear. And then, yeah, if you have that passion, that excitement, then you can start talking about the concerns and the ideas and the problems in that area and really start hitting them hard. So one thing that I have an example on is I've been working on a book for new programmers on how to find a job, which really doesn't apply to this market. If you're freelance, unless you're trying to find a job, a full-time, you know, W2 job. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to start, I've been working on it for a while. I haven't quite pulled the trigger and started recording yet, but I've been working on a podcast for new programmers And I'm going to talk about all the concerns that new programmers have. And some of it's going to be technology-focused, and some of it's going to be career-focused, and some of it's going to be like boot camps and how do I learn-focused. And I'm going to hit the concerns that those people have. And what that does is it allows me to have the conversation with them, which will ultimately bring them back and get them on my mailing list and get them to buy the book. And yes, that is one of the reasons why I'm doing it. I also feel like I can help people there, and that's another reason why I'm doing it but it's something that I'm excited about and it's an area I feel like I can make a difference in. And so that's where I'm going with it. And, you know, just to give this kind of full example. So it's not about an area of technology. It's about a segment of a market that I serve.
1: You just nailed it with, I'm excited about it. Pick something you're excited yeah,
2: about. Absolutely. And just to point out, that's the other sort of uh meta category of topics is stuff that's interesting to your clients and, Personally, I think those are. I think there's again there's value in both approaches. Like having a podcast for your peers can work. Uh, having a podcast for your clients can work also. I tend to favor having a podcast for your clients because then you're getting at least getting practice speaking to the people who would be hiring you, and, and I think yeah. that's a valuable skill for any freelancer or just self-employed person to develop. Just wanted to point out for folks like that's that's that kind of second category of podcast topics.
0: Yep. I'm going to use this to segue into something else. And that is that, you know, so you have the podcast for your clients. It seems like it's pretty obvious, right? And you can pull stuff out of the conversations you're having with your clients for your podcast and vice versa. But if you have a podcast for your peers already, I mean, I did Ruby Rogues for, man, we've been doing that for a little over five or six years now. I think we're five and a half years. But I was in a position where I had these podcasts for my peers And they really weren't yielding that many new contracts. So what do you do if you have that podcast for your peers and it's really not paying off for you and finding you work? And I have my own experience here, but I want to hear what you guys have to say.
1: Uh, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, The first first podcast I did seriously was with uh, my partner in crime, Kelly Shaver. And we did a podcast called The Niche Podcast, which was really about building apps that run everywhere. So it was kind of a spin-off concept of the kind of work that we were doing together. Uh, she's a Rails developer, full stack web developer. and we would talk about tech, most of the shows were really technical about how to build a web app that would run on a Pebble SmartWatch or you know like really highly accessible, highly flexible applications uh, that were very API driven. it was It was definitely for people like us. The people that listened to it were other developers who didn't maybe have as much time as we did to branch out in other areas. They just kind of had their job and they had to do it. So they would kind of code vicariously through us in a way. And we just did it for fun. Like we we thought it was fun. It was exciting. There was no grand plan. I don't even know whose idea it was. We just decided we would start doing it. And it was very educational in the sense of how to do a weekly podcast. And there really never was a motive other than it was like an hour in the week that we both looked forward to. So we did it. But every once in a while we do these episodes where we talked about the ramifications of technology. And we found that those were always, those were the ones that got the most shares and those ones that got the most emails. And so we ended up, we ended up just stopping that show and, and relaunching essentially part two called terrifying robot dog, which is specifically about how technology is changing the way we interact with the world, which is a much more NPR style focus, you know, where, where anybody really could listen to it uh, to try and try and get some sense of what technology is emerging and and how it's affecting society. So now this one, once we got less, you know, tech, Specific. I mean, there were there were episodes where we would be talking about bugs in code, like weird bugs in rails. Uh, so it was super geeky, and this new one is also very geeky, but it's much more aligned with the strategic stuff that I do with my mobile consulting. And I have found that I, I don't push it on the show. Like we don't. I don't say like I do speaking gigs or whatever. But it's prominently featured on my website. So if anybody googles me, who's listening to the show, who listens to the show and they find, really, search for anything about me in terms of mobile tech, then it's back to what we talked about earlier, where it's like, there's just, they're not even looking for anyone else. If I can't do the job, they'll ask me, who who should we look for? You know, if I'm booked already or something,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they'll say, oh, could you suggest someone else? Like, they don't even know what to Google, you know? Right. So that was kind of a monologue about it. I think what the question I'm answering is, like, how do you figure out how to monetize to your peers what i mean what we did was we just stopped that show and you know i could have sold maybe a video course or something you know i'm sure that would have worked but it wasn't really what we wanted to do it wasn't the goal we were just having fun and then once we saw that there was this other kind of place to go we went there and it certainly had a beneficial impact on It's closed a number of deals for me, that's for sure. But it's a very abstract way, like Philip was saying earlier, it's not a direct response type
2: of marketing. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you're talking about the troubles of trying to apply direct response thinking to a medium that's not inherently compatible with that. But I mean, to Chuck's question, I would say, maybe look for opportunities to integrate that podcast content into whatever outreach you're doing to your clients. So use it for credibility, for social proof. Um, So maybe it's not like a direct vehicle to find clients, but it's complementary to some other effort that you're doing to find clients. So if you are, let's say you're using outbound marketing to find clients, you can include podcast episodes in your outreach to them as either as social proof or as free education to them. That's kind of the, the direction I'm thinking in. If, if, if you have some peer-focused podcast that's not achieving your goals of, of attracting clients, either change the game, like Jonathan mentioned, or just try to fold it in to uh, strengthen your outreach to clients. Yeah.
0: So I'll chime in here because I did. I found myself in this position. And at the time, Ruby Rogues was getting somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10,000 downloads per episode. And so it felt a little bit silly to kind of transition away from it. And I did use it as social proof, but one other thing that I started doing is I started, and this came out of, in a lot of ways, people reaching out to me and basically asking how to give me money. And so what I wound up doing was, A, the sponsorships really helped um, offset the time I had to put into the podcasts. And then the other thing that I did was I started building training programs and products for them. And so, uh, instead of transitioning my podcast to match what I was trying to do, I transitioned my business to serve the people that I, whose attention I had. And so, that's, that's kind of the third way to go with this. So, I mean, definitely I was getting gigs off of people who were saying, you know, I'd like to work with Chuck, and he says that he has time to work with my team. I got training gigs. I did some training for careerbuilder.com out in Atlanta. I went out there a couple of times and... Um, I've done training locally for just a group of people that wanted training. And then I also, I built enough of a reputation here locally to where I was getting referrals from people who knew that I was freelance and that that was kind of the next, you know, that's what they needed and that's where I was at. And people knew that I had the expertise because I had built up, you know, that reputation through the podcast. But yeah, ultimately what I've done lately is I have transitioned toward, Um, building products for programmers. So I do the remote conferences. I'm working on some courses and some online materials and, uh, you know, working on some handouts to get people on the mailing list. The mailing list has 10,000 people on it now. And so, you know, I, I figured out pretty fast, hey, look, I've got enough people's attention and trust that I can work over here for them and make it work for me too. And so that's kind of that's kind of the, the direction that I've gone with this.
2: One question I wanted to maybe I'm interrupting, but one question I wanted us to touch on is how do you make your content interesting for whatever audience it's for?
1: Maybe to help answer that question. I, I have two questions that are rumbling around my head, too. That I, One of it, at least that I think is kind of in the same area that is is format questions. Like what format should you use? Like this is a panel show. You know, there are interview shows, there are sort of topic shows where the host just talks, there's co-host shows, and I feel like that's maybe in the same area that Philip's asking, like, how do you make the the information entertaining? Chuck, you have by far the most experience, so...
0: Yeah, so um, people ask me about format, and honestly, the format really depends on the host. It depends on the host much more than it depends on the audience, in my opinion. Because it comes back to something that you said earlier, and that's just passion and personality. Um, you know, am I the kind of person that can get on the podcast and monologue for 20 minutes? You know, if I want to do an hour show, am I the kind of person that can get on a monologue for an hour? Because then I can just do a Just Me podcast. And then it, the people who want to hear what Chuck has to say can do that. You know, I've also seen like Q&A style podcasts. That's what my friend Cliff Ravenscraft does. It's what Dan Miller does. It's what a lot of other folks do, and so they get questions from their audience and then they answer those questions and they kind of hit that what do people want to hear about? Well, they want to hear about what they're asking about, and at the same time, they don't have any schedules to figure out with anybody else. They don't have to worry about any connection issues. They don't have any of those other kinds of things that come up when you have a co-host. Other people, like the guys on .NET Rocks, There are a whole bunch of other shows, you know, they do really well kind of playing off of somebody that they know really well. And so the, you know, they'll bring a guest on, but there's kind of this inside conversation that's happening week after week because you have co-hosts, you know, and then you have a guest that comes in and kind of brings some other flavor periodically or every week. Um, And so you can kind of look at it that way as far as, you know, whether you're going to do interviews or whether you're going to have guests on your show or whatever. You know, John Lee Dumas, he likes to talk to other people. And so he, Entrepreneur on Fire, is interviews. And he knows what he wants to know from them. And so he has the same questions he asks people week to week or day to day. And so, you know, that works out for them. You know, and then you have the panels. And I like the panels because I like having kind of a nuanced conversation with people who have a different experience from what I do. And I like bringing experts in, the same experts, week after week so people can kind of get to know them. And recognize, okay, there are a whole bunch of experienced people on the show that I can get a whole bunch of value out of. And so that's the direction that I've gone. Because I I like the conversations. I like the banter that uh, goes back and forth. People feel like they're part of the conversation. And so I like that. What I recommend to people is that they just, they think about it. They think about their personality. They think about the types of conversations they like to have. The types of podcasts they like to listen to. Because that's also a good indicator. And then try it. The thing that's really funny is that people are like, well, what if it doesn't work? I said, then reboot the podcast. It's, it's not, it's not a permanent decision. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I recommend to people that they do at least five or six episodes in whatever style they decide on. And then if it's not working for them, then just, you know, post a five minute audio or video that says, Hey folks, look, the format's just not really working for me. I'm still excited about the content. And so I'm going to try and do this a little bit differently and then just do it different and uh, make it work that seems to work out pretty well for most people. So I've met people that have tried two or three formats and then they figured out what works for them. And I know other people that they, you know, they're like, yeah, I bought the mic. I started talking and I had five episodes recorded before I knew it and they just monologued and that worked for them. So it really just boils down to, you know, what kind of person am I? What am I trying to accomplish with it? You know, what am I trying to get out of it? Cause guests lend you credibility in a lot of ways and who am I trying to reach? And then, yeah. How does this work for me? You know, the scheduling hassles are just too much stress, so I'm just going to do it by myself. Fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, just whatever. So, so yeah. The more you know about yourself and how that works, that's the way you want to go. Yeah. As far as format goes, and I forgot what the other part was that you were asking. But how do you keep it entertaining? How do you keep it entertaining? If you're enjoying it most of the time, the people who are like you will gravitate to your show.
2: Um, oh man, I think that's such great advice. Yeah. If if you're not having fun or that's, that's a great sign you're doing something wrong.
0: <laughs> well, the other thing is is that I, I get people and they're like, well, like, I went and looked up business podcasts, and there are thousands of business podcasts. And I'm like, yeah, but there are people out there who are looking for a show from someone like you because they're someone like you. And so if you're putting out the show that you want, then you're going to attract the people who you want to interact with. I mean, you might have to do a little bit of work to get the word out and things like that, but people generally gravitate to the types of shows that are about and for people like them. And so if you go out there and you put the show out and you reach 500 people, then you're doing pretty darn good. If you think about a room full of 500 people, and it's hard for people to imagine this, but most of the middle of the road size conferences... The keynote room holds about 500 people.
1: Yeah, 500 is a good size conference room. It's not huge, it's not south by southwest, but yeah. It's a it's a good room.
0: So, I mean, if you think about that on, in those terms, you're reaching that many people. And just think for a minute, okay, well, what if you say something that has an impact on somebody? Like they get an idea from you about how they can improve their career or how they can make more money or how they can make a difference for somebody else or whatever in my opinion, that's worth it. And when you get that over and over and over again, I mean, that's a major payoff. And that, I mean, that's the payoff that I get from these shows is that I go to conferences and people are like, oh, well, I was thinking about going freelance and I listened to the entire backlog of freelancer show. And now I know pretty much exactly what I'm going to do. And in fact, I've already got two clients and I make $50,000 this year. Well, that's a win for me. Time. or if somebody comes to me and says i was looking to make a job transition out of accounting into programming and i listened to a whole bunch of javascript jabber and it turned out that all the interview questions were questions about stuff that i learned on the show and so i made a job transition i was able to move my family into a nicer neighborhood and i'm making 30 or forty thousand dollars more a year and on and on and on right so we made a difference for those people and it's those one and two people that make it, you make a difference for that makes the difference. And ultimately, in most of these shows, we're just talking about the stuff that we thought would be interesting to discuss, that we thought would be valuable for somebody else. And so how do you keep it interesting? I mean, that's basically it. We enjoy doing the show every week. There's some payoff for each of us. It's probably a little bit different for each of us. But that's what drives, I think, a lot of the energy for the show. And that's why I keep showing up every week is because I get, I get the payoff in the ways I described.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I keep coming back to, I feel like I, I, I don't want to get into tactics really, but I do feel like there's this key thing that just solves a lot of problems, which is if you're really excited about something, you're passionate about a particular thing, and you just come at it from, you know, that same thing. You come at it from different angles, you know, every week or every however often you do it, I feel like that solves a lot of problems. You know, unless you're just doing a tap fun, which I, I think is not what we're talking about here. This is like a show for people who are trying to make a living freelancing. I mean, obviously if you're just podcasting for fun, that's different. But if you're podcasting for your business and you want to make an impact, a specific impact on people's lives, I think knowing what the show is about, I think is pretty important. And yes. if if you have that then the episodes are all going to over, you know, if, if it, you know, it's a big success and you stay with it for a year and you, or two years, you have 50, 100, 200, 300 episodes, they'll all hang together. Like they'll all make sense together. And the same person can actually listen to the entire backlog. Like you just said, Chuck, and they'll and they'll all make sense. So if I was going to have like one piece of takeaway advice, it would be just pick a focus and stick with that for the podcast. And if it doesn't work, start a new podcast. But if it does, I think you'll be increasing your chances that it will. And then if it does, you know, as you create more and more episodes, they'll make sense
2: naturally. I agree, and I feel like Jonathan, you—if you just take out the word podcast, what you're talking about is <laughs> really true of yeah. uh, like self-employment, right? It's like mm-hmm. the more a feeling of connection you have to being able to make a specific kind of impact on—I mean, the world is really too large, but on the subset of the world that you can, you can influence through your work and even through your marketing, a lot of questions do really take care of themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, thousand true fans, right? You know, the Kevin Kelly post, Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be, I mean, Chuck's numbers are 10 times higher than, than anything I've had on my other two podcasts. And the new one I just launched is, you know, maybe a couple hundred subscribers so far, but that's, I mean, I'd like it if it was getting 10,000 downloads a week. I mean, that would be nice. I would feel like I was helping more people. But it doesn't need to be, I don't think, for, yeah. from like a business standpoint. It doesn't really need to be.
0: Well, and the other thing is, is that, so I have a friend and I've promised him I wouldn't divulge his numbers. But let's say that he he has uh, between 500 and 1,000 listeners. And he makes easily, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars. By selling products to his audience. Um, They're usually videos or courses. And the course is not cheap if you buy his course. But, I mean, honestly, if you're looking to build a business off of that and you can get enough people who are excited about what you're doing, you don't need an audience of 20,000 people. Or 50,000 people or 100,000 people. You can do it with a few hundred. And if that few hundred is a significant portion of the market that you're trying to serve, then pretty much everybody knows who you are and it's not hard to find work. And so I think that's the other trap that people fall into is they get it in their head. I mean, you know, Jonathan's saying, yeah, you know, some of Chuck's shows have 10 times the audience that mine does. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you have enough of those excited people in your audience, you can do it with 200 or 300. And that's enough, especially if you have a high-ticket offering that you're offering, or a high-value, high-ticket offering, I should say, or you you have some other expertise that is just gonna, you know, rocket somebody's business. But the other thing is, is you know, I've seen people make it with a thousand-dollar offering and an audience of five hundred people.
1: Right? Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at now. Where I've got a few offerings, you know, from fifty bucks to three thousand bucks, and so this new podcast that I launched is you know, I'm sure it's no surprise, like, obviously, I hope (laughs) people end up uh, liking the content and trusting me and and maybe considering buying some of those products, if if they feel like they're going to improve their lives. But this is the first time I've launched a podcast with the products in place first, which is very, very, uh, it's a very different feeling. It's also the first time I've done a solo podcast, which is a very different feeling which is wild. So I'm happy to, if people have questions about how it goes, I'd of course be happy to report back. But uh, it feels like, you know, we had a a show a while back where people are asked, like, how much should you share? And we were all kind of like, let's share everything. (laughs) You know, just share everything. And that's my approach here. Like with the podcast, I'm going to give away really all the secrets. There's no, that's not what the products are about. The products are about one-on-one assistance and custom assistance that you, you can't get with DIY type stuff. So really for people who can't afford 3000 bucks a month, you know, they can listen to the podcast. I can point them to that and I can say, Hey, this is, you know, here, are these webcasts here are these podcasts, they're free. Just check them out, join the email list, ask me questions on the email list. It's all free uh, for people who want to super accelerate that process and not like have to do everything themselves and figure out things the hard way for people who have more money than time, they can just hey, sign up and I don't know if it feels like a really natural fit for, if you do have, it's exactly like you said, if you have like a thousand dollar product and you've got, you know, two, three, 400 people on your uh, podcast list on your, on your subscribe to your podcast, you could probably do just buying. Yeah. But, I'll, I'll let you know in about six months.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to rephrase what you said, though, because I think I think the real meat there is that, it, well, first, I want to point out that if your business is down to the one secret that you absolutely can't divulge on your podcast or your business could put, you're betting on the wrong horse. Totally. Yes. But if you can share all of the secrets, all of the how-tos, all of the uh, nitty-gritty details on how to do exactly what it is that you are offering and then the execution is the hard part. I mean, that's what the coaching's about. That's what people are going to pay you for. You're going to get in and you're going to say, now do this. And then they'll execute or you'll execute together. And that's what they're paying for. That you yeah. know, that's, that's the payout right there. And so that's why they're going to hire you to do the coaching in Jonathan's case or to do the development or to do whatever else it is, is because they ultimately have something that needs to get done to solve some pain. And just having you there with your expertise, your trained eye to look at what they're doing and say, no, don't do that. Do this. And then they go execute and they get the payoff. I mean, that's, that's the product. And so you can give them the product on the podcast, but ultimately because the execution so hard, that's what they're going to buy from you.
1: Yep. There's all sorts of things. Decreases risk, increases accountability. Yep the specificity is much higher. You can get, you know, generic guidelines and advice are one thing, but you know, actually looking into somebody's pipeline and finances and home life, and you know, you can get really, really, you know, specific about what you would do in this particular person's case.
0: Yep. All right. Well, I've got to get to picks, but this I think has been really helpful. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions about podcasting, uh, feel free to go to Freelancer Show. And uh, you can just type it in on our topic recommendations form, um, or you can actually go to our questions for our Q&A, which we do every month, and uh, we can answer some of that there as well. Jonathan, do you want to start us off with picks?
1: Certainly. Uh, I'll just let people know the podcast I'm talking about here is called Ditching Hourly. You can go to ditchinghourly.com to hear about Ditching Hourly, (laughs) Ditching Hourly Billing. Fans of The Freelancer Show will know that I'm struggling against that, and I get into all the details and give away all the secrets on the podcast. So it just launched, only five episodes so far, and it's going to be a mix of interviews, Q&A, and just educational episodes. So I hope people enjoy that and get something out of it. Another thing, this is sort of random, but it is, I guess, podcast-related. I heard a fellow named Todd Tresseter talking about financial independence on Brennan Dunn's podcast. And he just, I mean, I've heard, you know, financial investment people online are just like usually the worst of the worst, like standing in front of a Lambo and talking about, you know, whatever, like with a lot of money in their hands. But this guy just totally clicked with me and his just like attitude and, and personality and his take on things was the fir- literally the first person ever, and I've worked in person with financial advisors, literally the first person ever who was like, oh, man, I get this guy. Like, this guy will get me. Like, we will, <laughs> this is a good fit. And he had a course, you know, it was like 500, or 600 bucks, and I ran to sign up for it because it was just like, you know, you know, from the podcast. So, So, folks, I would get, I guess my recommendation is to, check out the Todd Tresseter episode of the W Freelancing podcast. And if you dig Todd's shtick and you're interested in how to save some of that money that you're making, then uh, you can check out his stuff at financialmentor.com. But I've, I've been super, super happy with it. It's like the perfect thing for me. So there you go.
0: Very cool. Philip, what are your picks? Two picks. A
2: fair bit of context to support the first one. So, folks who listen to music on headphones uh, may be aware of binaural recordings. These are recordings that are made with uh, it's like it, it looks like a head on like a shopping uh, store dummy that they'll use to show off clothing. It's just a head with microphones mounted in the ears. I'm looking at uh, one of these right now, made by Neumann. It's the Ku 100. It's eight thousand dollars. Six to ten week. Uh, special order lead time for one of these things so they're, they're not very commonly used to make studio albums uh, they're often used to like to make live concert recordings that kind of thing and because the microphones are mounted inside you know some plastic ears on a plastic head uh, when the sounds reproduced through headphones it sounds particularly lifelike and there's a record label called Chesky that tends to make really, really great recordings that aren't overly compressed, uh, don't have the life squashed out of them. And they they like making binaural recordings, but they also <laughs> tend to have a hard time getting mainstream artists to do that kind of a studio album. So most of the binaural recordings out there are world music and inaccessible jazz uh, type stuff that doesn't really interest me that much. Macy Gray recently recorded an album called Stripped that was done by Chesky and and done with a bi- binaural recording. Sounds just amazing on headphones. And it, it's a really good album too. It's um, you know it's it's with a jazz uh, four piece band, but kind of a nice variety of songs, some covers and some original stuff in there. So I would recommend people check that out if, if you like listening to music on headphones and and want a uh, particularly interesting experience doing that. Macy Gray, the album is stripped. My second pick, uh, when Jonathan mentioned the 1,000 true fans experiment, I, I remembered a blog post series on a blog called The Online Photographer. A photographer there, not the author of the blog, but another guy named uh, Katine, did an experiment, like a real-life experiment, where he uh, kind of walked through this idea of a 1,000 true fans to figure out if he could support himself in that way. It's a series of five blog posts talking about some of the ins and outs of... Uh, of this, you know, thousand true fans idea. Obviously, I'm not going <laughs> to give a URL. I'll just put those links in the show notes. Um, but I would recommend folks check that out for at least one nice, rich data point on this idea of the thousand true fans idea.
0: All right. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, since we talked about podcasting, I'm going to pick a couple podcasts that I like about podcasting. One of them is uh, Podcast Answer Man. I think he rebranded it all to the Cliff Ravenscraft show, but he still talks a lot about podcasting. Definitely worth checking out. He also has a course on podcasting, and it's Podcasting A to Z. Last time I looked, the course was basically $2,000, $1,999. And he sent me a discount code a while back. The discount code is my last name, WOOD, W-O-O-D, all lowercase. And if you do that, it'll actually get you a $500 discount. So, yeah, you can go check it out at podcastinga2z.com. That's the word two, not the number two. But, yeah, Cliff's taught hundreds of people to podcast, and it's a really great course from the people I know who have taken it. I was listening to Cliff and podcasting before he came out with the course, so I've never taken it myself. But uh, definitely check that out. I also, last week, I mentioned that I'd been reading The 12-Week Year, which is a book about planning and goals and stuff. And, uh, I've actually got, I'm two weeks into my 12 week year and I am just loving this system. It is awesome. Somebody from my mastermind group actually created, uh, a spreadsheet that keeps track of all of your tactics and goals and, uh, your weeks and make sure that you're doing the stuff that you need to be doing. So definitely check that out as well. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, at least to my 12 week year. Uh, the first week I really didn't track things well or score the week. But I'm doing that from here on out through the end of the year, and I'm super excited about that. So you can go check that out. And then finally, by the time this goes live, Freelance Remote Conf for 2017, the web page will be up. I believe it will be in April. I'm going to be reaching out to speakers now so you can see the speaker slots start to fill up. So definitely check that out, FreelanceRemoteConf.com. And you can also check out the other conferences that I'm pulling together if you're a technologist because I'm covering JavaScript and Ruby and Rails and Angular and stuff like that. I'm considering putting on a podcast remote comp. So if you're interested in that, then shoot me an email, chuck at devchat.tv. And yeah, those are my picks. I just want to hear again, the pitch for ditching hourly, Jonathan, before we wrap up.
1: <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, hourly is terrible for you, your projects and your customers. So you should really switch over to not trading time for money.
0: All right, go check it out. That's ditchinghourly.com, right? That is correct. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll catch y'all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit CacheFly.com to learn more.